Hello and welcome to the Trauma and Mental Health Reports podcast series. We aim to share stories and knowledge on topics related to trauma and mental health with the community. My name is Samantha Mason, and I'd like to welcome our guests for today's episode, the Honorable Mr. Justice Richard D. Schneider. Hi, Richard. Thank you for sitting down with us again and giving us your time. My pleasure. Um, So last time we spoke, we kind of went through uh, why you thought the mental health court was a necessity in the city of Toronto and how you played a role in the Don Jail. Transformation. Um, yes, uh, an accused who went through a remarkable transformation. So thank you for that. Um, today we're going to get into a little bit more of the process of decriminalizing the mentally ill. Um, so to begin, how would you define the process of decriminalizing the mentally ill? Well, I guess in a very general global sense, um, the idea um, anticipates a way of responding to behaviors we don't want to see on the streets and in the communities that we've identified as criminal. We want a way of responding to those that doesn't immediately engage the police. And from there, inevitably, the courts and the jails and filling the jails full of people who are suffering from mental disorder. So um, given that we as a society have identified certain behaviors that we don't want to see on our streets and in our communities. We've identified them as criminal. We want them to change. We're really in the business of behavior modification. Um, We want to change, um, we want to uh, reduce the probability of undesirable behaviors occurring, and we want to um, increase the probability of pro-social or desirable behaviors occurring. And um, as everyone might have remembered from Psychology 101, um, the least effective uh, way of changing behavior is um, punishment as a response. And particularly when the punishment follows not immediately after the behavior in question, so there's some kind of a nexus or connection in the mind of the uh, perpetrator, but in our system, it's typically uh, weeks, months, and sometimes years after the event in question. So how do we come up with something better than um, engaging police, courts, jails, um, and uh, that whole, um, that whole um, collection of, um, uh, of people and places? And, um, you know, there are a number of possibilities. Um, what we would like to do, I think, is find a better way of responding at first instance. Um, and there's been a lot of talk about this, you know, in the press and the media, so that, for example, when there's a, a behavioral disturbance reported, um, the people to whom it's reported have a better way of triaging exactly what's going on. So the people deployed to respond to the situation might, for example, uh, be um, mental health workers or social workers uh, uh, or psychiatric nurses rather than the police. Or, and there's models for this sort of thing um, going on, it's called pre-arrest diversion, where, uh, for example, an unmarked police car with a plainclothes officer um, 
might attend at a scene with a psychiatric nurse or social worker and come up with some kind of um, better solution to an automatic um, arrest. Uh, for example, returning the person back home, back to a hospital, um, to a psychiatric emergency, to a detox, something like that, other than um, laying, um, which is the easiest thing to do, of course, laying another criminal charge, having them appeal and appear in bail court the next morning. And uh, with that, we have um, a new so-called forensic patient. That's the sort of thing, um, we, that's the sort of transition um, I think we need to start uh, working toward. Uh, we know that the criminal justice system is a very blunt and, and ineffective instrument in effecting um, uh, behavior change um, uh, and inappropriate. I mean, um, uh, what we have to do though is recognize that our system is one that evolved. It wasn't one that was planned. And no one would have planned uh, that the criminal justice system should be a principal dispenser of mental health care or that um, behavioral disturbances caused by untreated or undertreated mental disorder should be responded to by a police officer. I mean, who would imagine that? Mm -hmm. Sounds like a terrible design, but that's what we've got here. So these are the sorts of um, uh, things that uh, I would um, envisage or recommend or hope that we could move toward as we go into the uh, future. So Richard, what do you think are the barriers to the effective evaluation of accused in mental health courts as they stand today? Well, I guess the first barrier is um, recognizing um, that somebody has a, a mental disorder in the first place. And so that would, that would be a, a juncture preceding their arrival. Uh, people get to mental health court after they've been identified in another first appearance court, either by duty counsel or own counsel or their behavior in the court that causes the court to think that they're maybe a mental disorder going on that could impact upon uh, one of the two key psycholegal issues being either fitness to stand trial or criminal responsibility. So if that opportunity is missed, um, there's no chance. Um, now, a, a lot of counsel um, in taking their instructions um, will deliberately not raise the issue of mental disorder because they're concerned that the response could have a disproportionate could be disproportionate to the gravamen of the offense. So for example, do you want to raise the issue of fitness to stand trial when your client's charged with a relatively minor shoplift, they're a first offender, upon a plea of, a plea of guilty, they're likely going to receive an absolute discharge uh, and no criminal conviction. So do you really want to engage in that process? So the, the first barrier is, is um, having the accused and or counsel um, self-identify. Um, once they get to mental health court, um, it's, um, it's, I think uh, the odds are pretty good that the mental disorder will be detected and diagnosed. Although we're in the early stages um, when they hit a mental health court typically, it's usually fairly soon after arrest um, and so the dust is settling, as it were, on what the diagnostic picture might be. Um, at the very beginning, there are lots of competing uh, differential diagnoses. Sometimes a drug overdose can mimic uh, a schizophrenia. So with the passage of time, 
um, various competing differential diagnoses may resolve and a clearer picture may emerge. But for the purposes of mental health court, it's not really critical that we have a crisp diagnosis of precisely what is going on. Uh, all we need to be um, reasonably sure of is that there's a mental disorder in play um, and that there is a logical nexus between the mental disorder and the behavior that's being alleged. Mm -hmm. So as long as that kind of a connection is there, we don't insist upon um, um, you know, a complete fulsome assessment up front. That will happen as time goes on. And um, so that, that, those are, those, I guess, the two obvious things I can think of. Mm -hmm. um, so <clears throat> a couple colleagues uh, and yourself came together to author a critique and recommendations on how to achieve the goal of decriminalizing the mentally ill. Can you tell us a little bit about the general observations you have seen and the recommendations that would remedy those? Right. Well, um, I think what you're alluding to is the, the book that um, colleagues and myself uh, put together several years ago now, dealing with uh, mental health courts. And um, the idea there um, is that um, individuals appearing before the court um, with a mental illness could be more effectively treated if there was a, a specialized court equipped to deal with that specific population. Uh, what was abundantly clear was that the regular prosecutorial stream was doing miserably. And that by the mid 90s, um, untreated um, individuals with untreated or undertreated mental disorder were coming through the courts at a conspicuously high rate. And that's due to probably a number of different things. Um, changes in the criminal code legislation, which made self-identifying um, a, a, a more attractive option. Um, you've got overlapping with that cutbacks across the Western world in mental health care spending. You have the closure of psychiatric hospitals. You have um, insufficient um, community mental health care, all of which um, uh, combine to drive the probability of people with mental disorders arriving in the criminal courts. And so what to do about this big problem? And so the thinking was um, that uh, perhaps if we set aside a separate docket in a separate courtroom with people who were specially trained, um, we might deal with the problem more effectively. There were, prior to the creation of the court, horrendous wait times for psychiatric assessments. And once we had an individual clear up their typically fairly minor matters, we would see them no sooner were they out the door, we'd see them back in court again because there was no follow up. There was no um, no survival kit that would reduce the probability of them reoffending and coming back to court. So we uh, came up with the idea of a mental health court um, staffed with specialized people, in particular court mental health workers who were, um, who are, um, and this, this goes back to 1997, the court opened in 1998. 
the, the court mental health workers or social workers who act as case managers who assist the accused in getting plugged into the various resources in the community from which they'd either never been connected or got disconnected. And um, then the idea is that after the accused um, uh, enters um, a program of rehabilitation, which is custom tailored to fit their particular needs, and uh, there's a pattern of um, stability and autonomy demonstrated, then the charge um, or charges are stayed or withdrawn. So they're decriminalized in the sense that um, uh, they've been transferred out of the criminal justice system into the civil system, hopefully connected up with um, uh, sufficient uh, resources or infrastructure to keep them afloat into the so, future. Richard, how would the implementation of these recommendations uh, play out in the court system as they are today and how would it change? Right. Well, we've come a long way since 1998. Um, it's getting close to a quarter of a century since we've had a mental health court in downtown Toronto, which was uh, one of the first in North America. There was, there was one that actually came about at precisely the same time in Broward County, Florida, but we didn't know they were working on the same project. So um, we, can, we can claim that we were, <laughs> we were the first, or tied for first, 20, 24 years ago. Um, so since, since that time, we've learned an awful lot. We've learned that getting at the root cause of the criminal behavior or the undesirable behavior we've identified as criminal, getting at the root cause and treating that is more effective, um, obviously, than by um, simply punishing people on the basis of the behavior that they're um, uh, demonstrating. And, um, you know, the, the, the data is in. Uh, it's come mostly, actually, from the United States. Um, we know now that, um, and these courts, first of all, just to be sure, you know, they, they take many, they come in different shapes and sizes, but you know, there's, there's general commonalities. But what we know in a, in a broad global general sense is that um, graduates or completers of um, uh, mental health court programs um, offend less often, they offend less seriously, the reoffending when it does occur tends to be less violent, um, there are more stable um, um, connections with mental health resources in the community. Um, employment and housing are maintained um, significantly better. Um, so in general, um, the completers um, do significantly better um, from a number of different angles. And um, so it's um, clearly a win then for the completers. They're, they're leading happier, um, uh, more stable, more successful lives um, and no longer doing life on the installment plan um, with the courts. Uh, it's a win for um, society, for the public, because to the extent that recidivism is reduced, reoffending re is re reduced, and the streets and communities are safer. Uh, as well, with every person who's diverted out of the criminal justice system into the civil system, the charges are stayed or withdrawn, that obviates another prosecution, which is expensive. It, 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 it gobbles up the time of Crown prosecutors, courts. Uh, it's, it's an expensive thing to be doing. So from all of those different angles, 
and I'm speaking in very general terms here, but from all of those different angles, um, there's a solid business case um, for this sort of approach to undesirable behavior. The question though is, is it time now to move these approaches out of the specialty courts, these, um, some people call them boutique courts, these specialty courts, problem solving courts. Why can't this be done in all the courts? Why do you have to go to a particular special court to have the court see you in a particular more productive way? And I think that um, it's time now to sort of export the lessons that we've learned from the mental health courts and these specialty courts, export those lessons um, and infuse them into the thinking of the criminal courts in a general way. Mm -hmm. So then in an ideal world, what does the future of mental health or criminal court look like to you? We get rid of them. <laughs> Completely. Because we don't need them anymore. Yeah. Because what we've learned from the clinical trials, if you will, mm -hmm. conducted at the mental health courts, we've now infused into the criminal justice system writ large. Mm -hmm. So we no longer need these little boutique courts as a special place you go to get this special treatment. This special treatment should be available to anyone anywhere once they're apprehended because of, of undesirable behavior. That's, that's what I would like to see. I think that's, that's the evolution. Mm -hmm. um, no more mental health courts, just because we don't need them. Yeah, that's great. Awesome. Well, thank you for sitting down with us again, Richard, and giving <laughs> us your time. Um, it's been very informative. Oh, my pleasure. So thank you. You've reached the end of this week's episode with the Trauma Mental Health Report podcast. Thanks for joining us. Connect with us at trauma.blog.yorku.ca. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or LinkedIn. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and newsletter to see our latest content. We'll see you at the next episode.